0: Chapter Twelve of the Book of Buried Treasure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Buried Treasure by Ralph Daley Payne. Chapter Twelve: The Toilers of the Thetis. The Lutine was not the only treasure-laden freight lost by the British Navy. The circumstances of the wreck of the thetis in eighteen thirty are notable not so much for the gold and silver that went down in her as for the heroic courage and bulldog persistence of the men who toiled to recover the treasure their battle against odds was an epic in the annals of salvage they were treasure-seekers whose deeds forgotten by this generation and grudgingly rewarded by their own were highly worthy of the best traditions of their flag and their race on the morning of december fourth of the year mentioned the forty six gun frigate thetis with a complement of three hundred men sailed from rio de janeiro homeward bound as a favorite of various merchants of the south american coast who were fearful of the pirates that still lurked in the west indies her captain had taken on board for consignment to london a total amount of eight hundred and ten thousand dollars in gold and silver bars during the evening of the second night at sea the ship was running at ten and a half knots with studding sails set in plenty of offing, by the reckoning of deck officers, the lookout stationed on the cathead had no more than bellowed "breakers under the bow when his comrade echoed it with rocks above the masthead an instant later, the soaring bowsprit of the frigate splintered with a tremendous crash against the sheer cliffs of Cape Frio. The charging vessel fetched up all standing her hull had not touched bottom, and there was nothing to check her enormous momentum in a twinkling. Literally in the space of a few seconds, her three masts were ripped out and fell on deck with all their hamper, killing and wounding many of the crew. Instead of that most beautiful sight in all the world, a ship under full sail and running free, there was a helpless hulk pounding out her life against the perpendicular wall of rock. The catastrophe befell so suddenly that when Captain Burgess rushed from his cabin at the warning shout, the masts tumbled just as he reached the quarter deck
1: no description can realize the awful state of the old fated ship and all aboard at this appalling moment the night was rainy and so dark that it was impossible to ascertain their position beyond the fact of their being repeatedly driven with tremendous force against cliffs of a stupendous height above them and consequently inaccessible and not offering the slightest chance of escape the upper deck of the ship the only part in which exertion could be useful was completely choked up with masts, sails and rigging which presented obstacles it rendered unavailing every attempt at active exertion while the ears of all who were of course using their utmost endeavors for the general safety were pierced by the cries of the dying and wounded for the assistance which the imperious calls of duty forbade them to give nothing but inevitable destruction presented itself to all on board and their perfectly helpless state rendered all deliberation useless and indeed there was no choice of measures no point on which to offer an opinion and it can only await such means as providence might present as by a miracle the bowsprit
0: and yard-arms had so checked the speed of the frigate acting as a sort of buffer that her hull was not smashed like an egg-shell but was found to be fairly tight all of the boats had been smashed by the falling spars and their wretched company could only hang fast and pray that the wreck might float until daylight but the hammering seas soon caused her to leak through yawning seams And despairing of keeping her from sinking, a few of the crew managed to reach a shelving projection of rock about twenty feet above the deck. It was a forlorn hope, so perilous to attempt, that many of those who scrambled for a foothold fell between the ship and the cliff, and were drowned or crushed to death. Presently the hulk swung away from the face of the cliff, and was driven a distance of a third of a mile along the coast, and into a tiny cove or notch in the bold headlands of Cape Frio. Here she remained, now sinking very fast party who had succeeded in making a landing on the ledge clawed their way to the rescue following the drifting ship and with the hardihood and agility of british towers of the old breed they made their way down the declivity like so many cats and succeeded in making fast to a rope thrown by their comrades on board by this means several men had been hauled to safety when the dying frigate lurched wildly and parted the hawser. it was discovered that she now rested on the bottom part of the port bulwark the hammock nettings the taffrail and the stumps of the mast remained above water and to these the crew clung while the surf roared over their heads and threatened to tear them away the situation was now hopeless indeed but all left alive on board were saved by the daring and strength of one man boatswain Geach. geech he fought his way through the breakers to the stump of the bowsprit lashed himself there and succeeded in passing a line to his comrades on shore a strong rope was then hauled up and one by one the men on board were slung to safety upon the cliffs almost all the survivors were dreadfully bruised and lacerated when the news reached rio de janeiro the british sloop of war lightning was in that port and her commander captain thomas dickinson was the sort of man who likes nothing better than to lead a forlorn hope and grapple with difficulties said he the consternation occasioned by the dreadful catastrophe was not confined to naval persons but was universally felt at rio particularly among mercantile people since from the tenor of the letter and the description given by the officer who brought it the ship and everything she contained were considered as totally lost the event became a matter of general conversation but while every one deplored it i did not hear of any who seemed disposed to venture on an attempt to recover the property all appearing to consider the case as perfectly hopeless here was an undertaking which if successful would assuredly lead to professional reputation and fortune but which every one whom i addressed on the subject thought must fail still the scarcity of the opportunities of obtaining distinction and credit by an extraordinary act of duty which present themselves to officers in these piping times of peace offered a consideration which prevailed and i determined on making the attempt if i could get orders from the commander-in-chief to that effect the admiral of the station proceeded to cape Frio with a squadron of five vessels and after a careful study of the situation of the wreck concluded that it would be futile to try to recover any of the sunken treasure in the face of this verdict captain dickinson felt reluctant to press his own views but to be in his bonnet would not be denied actuated however by the same feelings which had at first prompted me to hazard the attempt and having a natural repugnance to receding after having during my inquiries disclosed my views very freely i was resolved to persevere during the absence of the commander-in-chief i constantly employed myself in inquiring for any persons likely to assist me searching for implements and obtaining all the information within my reach and devised several instruments of minor importance which appeared likely to be useful on his return from cape frio i showed these to him of the whole of which he approved captain dickinson could find no diving bell in rio so this versatile officer proceeded to make one and an extraordinary contrivance it was for men to risk their lives in at the bottom of the sea from his majesty's ship warspite one of the squadron in harbor he obtained two iron water-tanks these were turned over to an english mechanic named moore formerly employed by the brazilian government who was assisted by the carpenter of the lightning between them they fashioned the water-tanks into something that looked like a diving bell these capable artisans then built an air pump, and now they were shy of hose through which to force air to the submerged toilers. Being unable to find a workman in Rio de Janeiro who would undertake to make an airtight hose, explains Captain Dickinson, there appeared for a time to be a stop to my preparations. But recollecting that there was a Truscott's pump on board the Lightning, I attempted to render the hoses belonging to it fit for the purpose, and to my great delight succeeded by first beating them hard with a broad-faced hammer to render the texture as close as possible, then giving them a good coat of Stockholm tar, afterwards parceling them well with new canvas saturated with the same material, and finally serving them with three yarn spun yarns, made of new yarns and well twisted having thus surmounted without assistance the two most formidable difficulties that had yet presented themselves i entertained a hope that my own resources would prove equally available on future occasions and hence my confidence in ultimate success increased in the event of the stores and treasures still remaining where the ship was lost my officers and crew likewise now began to feel a great interest in all that was doing and their conduct and expressions afforded me a happy presage that their future exertions would fulfil my most sanguine expectations i could not but feel the same encouragement was not afforded by some from whom i had most reason to expect both it and assistance For although I had now been for six weeks engaged in work, drudging on in the double capacity of carpenter and blacksmith, I had not a single voluntary offer by them of any article that might be useful to me. Nor was the kindness of my friends very encouraging, for they almost universally endeavored to dissuade me from venturing on an enterprise which everyone considered hopeless, to all of which remonstrances. My only reply was that my mind was made up, and that I should not withdraw from it the lightning sailed to begin operations at cape frio on the twenty fourth of january eighteen thirty one with a brazilian launch in tow and le a french frigate and company going to visit the place as a matter of curiosity at the scene of the wreck were found the sloop-of-war algerine a schooner as tender and a complement from the warspite which were engaged in saving such stores and spars as had drifted ashore the theatre of captain dickinson's ambition as a treasure-seeker was hostile and forbidding coast on which it seemed impossible to tarry except in the most favorable weather as he describes it the island of cape frio is about three miles long and one in breadth is the southeastern extremity of brazil and separated from the mainland by a narrow strait or gut about four hundred feet broad having very deep water in it and through which the land on each side being very high the wind constantly rushes in heavy gusts and a rapid current runs this island is entirely mountainous and nearly covered with an almost impenetrable forest and the whole coast on the sea side of it is formed by precipitous cliffs washed by very deep water close to the shore and on the harbor side with the exception of a sandy bay is very steep and rugged the little notch in the seaward cliffs into which the frigate had been driven was named thetis cove by captain Dickinson, who explored it vainly for traces of the wrecked hull either she had been washed out into deep water or had entirely broken up two months had passed since the disaster and the only way of trying to find the remains of the vessel was by means of sounding with the hand-lead until the diving-bell could be rigged the depth of water ranged from thirty-six to seventy feet at the base of the cliffs this cove was an extraordinarily difficult place to work in there being no beach and the ramparts of rock towering straight from the water to heights of from one hundred to two hundred feet said captain dickinson on viewing this terrific place with the knowledge that at the time of the shipwreck the wind was from the southward i was struck with astonishment and it appeared quite a mystery that so great a number of lives could have been saved and indeed it will never cease to be so for that part at which the crew landed is so difficult of access that even in fine weather after being placed by a boat on the rock at the base it required considerable strength and agility with the assistance of a man-rope to climb the precipitous face of the cliff and i am certain that in the hour of extreme peril when excessive exertion was called forth there must have been a most extraordinary display of it by a few for the benefit of the whole now this makeshift diving-bell of his had to be suspended from something in order to be raised and lowered but neither his own ship the lightning nor any of the other vessels of the salvage fleet could be anchored in the cove to serve the purpose because of the grave danger of being caught on a lee shore at first captain dickinson planned to stretch a cable between the cliffs on either side of the cove but this was found to be impracticable thereupon he proceeded to fashion a huge derrick from which the diving bell should hang like a sinker at the end of a fishing rod there was no timber on the cape that was fit to be worked up by the ship carpenters but these were these mr Bad of the worst bit and Mr. Daniel Jones of the Lightning, were not to be daunted by such a trifling matter as this, if a derrick was needed, they were the men to make it out of nothing. What they did was to assemble the broken masts and spars that had drifted ashore from the wreck of the Thetis, and patched them together into one immense derrick arm, which with its gear weighed as much as forty tons. It was a masterpiece of ingenuity and seamanship of the old-fashioned school. Such as can no longer be found in navies, this breed of handy-man at sea belonged with the vanished age of masts and canvas wooden walls our encampment and the adjacent parts of the island now presented a bustling and i flattered myself a rather interesting scene wrote the commander there were parties of carpenters building the derrick making carrying to the selected situations and placing the securities for supporting and working it riggers were preparing the gear for it sawyers cutting wood for various purposes rope makers making lashings and seizing stuff from the pieces of cable crept up from the bottom and two sets of blacksmiths at their forges those of the horsepit making hoops bolts nails from various articles which had been crept up and those of the lightning reducing the large diving bell and constructing a smaller one five gangs of excavators leveling platforms on the heights above the cove cutting roads to lead to them and fixing bolts in numerous parts of the faces of the cliffs some were employed in felling trees and cutting grass for the huts while others were building and thatching them water carriers were passing to and from the pool with breakers of water and the officers were attending to the different parties assigned to them for their immediate guidance when ready to be placed in position this derrick built of odds and ends was an enormous spar one hundred and fifty-eight feet long to support it over the water elaborate devices had to be rigged from the cliff overhead and the whole story of this achievement as related by captain dickinson reads like such a masterful almost titanic battle against odds that it seems worth while quoting at some length we had by this time taken off thirteen feet of the peak of the northeast cliff and thereby made a platform of eighty feet by sixty on this was placed the lightning's capstan and four crabs formed of the heels of the thetis's topmasts the lightning's bower and stream anchors and the store anchor to which was shackled the chains, splicing tails and several lengths of the thetis's chain stream cable which we had recovered extending several fathoms over the cliff to attach to the standing parts of the topping lifts and guide topping lifts too and preserve them from chafing against the rocks there were also eight large bollards placed in proper positions for other securities four other platforms each large enough for working a crab were made at appropriate parts for using the guys and guy-topping lifts the roads and paths had been cut extending from our encampment to those platforms and from the one to the other of them together amounted to the length of nearly a mile and a half the zigzag path down the cliff was finished and at those parts of the main cliff which were inaccessible in this manner rope ladders were substituted and thus a communication was formed with the cove at the point where the derrick was to be stepped all this being done the large hawsers were roved through the blocks their purchases lashed to them and partially overhauled over the cliffs the getting the before-mentioned heavy articles up was most distressingly laborious for they were obliged to be carried a greater part of the distance where the surface was covered with a deep loosed sand and to this cause may be mainly attributed a complaint of the heart which subsequently attacked several of the people the derrick which was now composed of twenty-two pieces united by a great number of dowels and bolts thirty-four hoops and numerous wooldings of four-inch ropes was finished on the evening of the seventh and the clothing fitted on and i now had arrived at a point which required much foresight and prearrangement namely the preparation for erecting it and it was necessary to weigh with coolness and circumspection the mode by which this was to be done a party of about sixty of our best hands were employed in getting the lightning's chain and hempen-stream cables and large hawsers passed over and around the faces of the cliffs and the purchases were sufficiently overhauled to admit of their reaching the derrick and the falls brought to the capstan and crabs ready for heaving it up all who are well acquainted with the character and manners of sailors know that it is no easy matter to rid them of their habitual heedlessness i endeavoured to impress them with the need of caution and the almost universal answer i got was never fear sir which from the fearless and careless manner in which it was expressed was by no means calculated to remove my apprehensions for their safety the task we had now in hand was one of much danger the parties working over the cliffs were some of them slung in bites of rope some supported by man-ropes some assisting each other by joining hands and others holding by the uncertain tenure of a tuft of grass or a twig while loose fragments of rock being disturbed by the gear and by the men who were working on the upper part were precipitated amidst those below while the sharp crags lacerated the hands and feet and rendered dodging these dangers extremely difficult however by great attention on the part of the officers and by promptitude in giving aid when required this very arduous part of our work was performed, which I sincerely believe could not have been accomplished by any men in the world but British seamen, the only accidents being some cuts in the hands and feet, and bruises from falling stones. All the gear being prepared, in the evening I arranged the distribution of my officers with their particular parties at the capstan, crabs, purchases, etc the smallness of the number of hands sent from the war spite rendered it necessary that i should have every working man from the lightning and on this occasion she was left with only a few convalescents to take care of her and even the young gentlemen were obliged to give their aid at the capstan on the morning of the ninth the derrick was launched without casualty and while the boats were towing it to the cove all gear was got ready to be attached to it the moment it arrived at the proper position according to the plan i had given it had to be towed for a distance of about a mile subject to the influence of a strong current running westward through the gut at once exposing us to the twofold danger of being driven to the sea or against the rocks in apprehension of accident from one or the other of these causes i had taken precaution of placing bolts at several points of the rocks so that in case of necessity a warp might be made fast however the derrick reached the cove without disaster and as everything depended on promptitude of action i had all the gear fitted to go with toggles which so much facilitated the rigging that in one hour and a half after its arrival everything was in place and the lightning's chain-stream cable being made fast to the heel of the derrick ready for heaving up i left the further management in the cove to mr chatfield and placed myself upon the main cliff I then gave the order to heave round and every one was on the alert but we had scarcely brought any considerable strain on the gear when a report came to me that the heel of the derrick was displaced and driven into a chasm at the foot of the cliff an accident which for this time put an end to further efforts i had no alternative but to cast everything off in a hurry and if possible return to the harbor with the derrick but this had become exceedingly doubtful for the wind was much increased since morning and the current more rapid we repeatedly succeeded in towing the derrick into the gut and were as often driven back till at length we were compelled to make it fast to the rock outside until a small anchor and some grapnels were laid out by which means it was finally warped into the harbour and by half-past eleven at night moored near the adelaide undismayed by this failure by seven o'clock of the following morning we were again in the cove with the derrick the vast weight the great height of the purchases the number of them and the great distances they were apart made united effort impossible but at the close of the day i had the satisfaction of seeing this huge spar in the place assigned for it and the head of it hove ten feet above the water on the eleventh we were again at our purchases and the head of the derrick was raised to the angle i had intended being about fifty feet above the surface of the sea during the operation of erecting the derrick it showed great pliability the result of being composed of so many pieces which obliged us to get numerous additional guys on and having thus secured it we returned to our encampment all hands greatly fatigued by three days of the most harassing exertion from half-past four in the morning until late at night on looking down from the precipice on this enormous machine with all its necessary rigging it became a matter of astonishment to myself and i believe to every one else who saw it that with the small means we had we could have succeeded in such a situation it has been my lot to witness many circumstances in which there was cause for great solicitude and every one wherein such general anxiety was manifested as on this occasion if any one thing had given way it must have been fatal to the whole a general crash would have been inevitable meanwhile captain dickinson had found time to devise a small diving bell made from another water tank which could be operated from spars and tackles set up on board a launch this was employed for exploring the bottom of the cove in order to find where the treasure was bell held two men and there were plenty of volunteers to risk their lives in the first descent in this little iron pot the trip was disastrous and the commander described it as follows the water happened to me particularly clear which gave me an indistinct sight of the bell at the depth of eight fathoms and i had been watching it with breathless anxiety for a long time when suddenly a small line of air bubbles rose from about the middle of the hose i instantly gave the word to the men in the launch to make ready to haul away but the two men on the bell made no signal to be pulled up the agitation of the sea became greater every minute, and there was a rise and fall of eight or ten feet of surf against the cliffs. The danger was increasing, and I was about to order the bell to be raised, when an immense column of air came bursting up from it. It had been driven violently against the rocks, thrown on its side, and filled with water. The next moment I saw the two men emerge from the bell and swim to the surface. Haines had been entangled in the signal line, but he managed to release himself, and Dewar bobbed up a few seconds later they were too exhausted to say much but he's called to his partner never mind mate we haven't done with the damn thing yet these plucky seamen went down again and discovered considerable wreckage of the lost frigate the brazilian colonel with a gang of native indian divers now appeared on the scene with a great deal of brag about their ability to find the treasure without any apparatus they proved to be pestering nuisances who accomplished nothing and were sent about their business after several futile attempts under water they furnished one jest however which helped to lighten the toil the bell was being lowered when one of these natives or caboclos slid over the side of the boat and disappeared in the green depths in a few seconds the signal came from the bell to hoist up fearing trouble the helpers hoisted lustily as the bell approached the surface something of a brownish hue was seen hanging to its bottom which was presently discovered to be the caboclo who had tried to enter the bell Men mistook him for an evil spirit or some kind of sea monster and kicked him back into the water outside, and he can only hang on by the footrail with his head inside the bell. The first encouraging tidings was signaled from the small diving bell on March 27th when a bit of board floated up from the submerged men with these words written upon it, careful in lowering the bell to a foot, for we are now over some dollars. Soon they came up from seven fathoms down with their caps full of silver dollars and some gold, captain dickinson decided to push the search night and day and the boats were therefore equipped with torches it was a spirited and romantic scene as he describes it thenus cove would have supplied a fine subject for an artist the red glare cast from the torches on every projection of the stupendous cliffs rendered the deep shadows of their fissures and indentations more conspicuous the rushing of roaring sea into the deep chasms produced a succession of reports like those of cannon and the assembled boats flashing in and out of the gloom were kept in constant motion by the long swell the experiment succeeded to admiration and we continued taking up treasure until two o'clock of the morning of the first of april when we were glad to retire having obtained in the whole by this attempt six thousand three hundred twenty six dollars thirty six pounds ten ounces of platapina five pounds four ounces of old silver two hundred forty three pounds eight ounces of silver in bars and four pounds eight ounces of gold after a little rest we were again at our employment by half-past five and proceeded very prosperously for some hours and then had to desist because of a dangerous shift of wind as soon as the larger bell and the giant derrick could be put in service the happy task of fishing up treasure was carried on at a great pace unlike many other such expeditions nothing was done at haphazard the toilers under water were first to go to the outermost dollar or other article of gold they could discover and to place the pig of ballast with a bright tally board fast to it against and on the inner side of the nearest fixed rock they could find from this they were then to proceed to take up all that lay immediately on the surface of the bottom but not to remove anything else until all that was visible was obtained this being done they were to return to the place first searched and passing over the same ground remove the small rocks and other articles one by one and progressively take up what might be recovered by such removal but not on any account to dig without express orders from me life in the camp on cape frio had no holiday flavor and while there was continual danger afloat there were troubles and hardships on shore in addition to our sufferings from the wind and rain penetrating our flimsy huts we were attacked by myriads of tormentors in the shape of ants mosquitoes fleas and worst of all jiggers many of the people frequently had their eyes entirely closed from the stings of the mosquitoes at night swarms of fleas assailed us in our beds, while well, at day it afforded a kind of amusement to pull up the leg of one's trousers and see them take flight like a flock of sparrows from a corn stack, while well, there might be a hundred congregated inside the stocking. Those little insidious devils, the jiggers, penetrated the skin in almost all parts of the body, forming a round ball and causing sores, which being irritated by the sand became most painful and troublesome ulcers, and produced lameness to half our number at a time snakes are so numerous that the thatching and almost every nook of our huts was infested with them they were often found in the people's hammocks and clothes and several were caught on board the ship on one occasion my clerk's assistant was riding in his hut when a rustling in the overhanging growth caused him to look up and discover a huge snake its head extending several feet inside the hole that served as a window he alarmed the camp and muskets cutlasses sticks and every other weapon were caught up the snake escaped but I received numerous reports of his extraordinary dimensions. My steward insisted that it was as big around as his thigh. The sentry said it was as big as the lightning's bower cable, and as to length the statements varied between twenty and thirty feet. At another time Mr. Button, the boatswain, went into the store, in which there was no window, to get a piece of rope. Going in from the glare of the sun the place appeared dark to him, and he laid hold of what he thought was a length of rope, pulled lustily at it, and was not undeceived until it was dragged out into the light then he was horror-struck to find he had hold of a large snake in may captain dickinson was able to send it to england his majesty's ship eden treasure to the handsome amount of a hundred and thirty thousand dollars in bullion and specie and had every promise of recovering most of the remainder of the precious cargo then a terrific storm swept the cove totally demolished the derrick carried the large diving belt at the bottom made hash of the whole equipment devised with such immense toil and pains was he discouraged not a bit of it he straightway set his men at work to construct new apparatus with which he fetched up more gold and silver to the value of half a million dollars before he forsook the task first let him tell you in his own words of that tragic storm and its results at one o'clock of the morning of may nineteenth it blew a perfect gale the cove was in a far more disturbed state than i had ever seen it before the seas rolled up the cliff to an astonishing height and by daylight the cove was in a state of awful commotion the spray was driven so wildly that while standing on the main platform at an elevation of a hundred and fifty-five feet i was completely wet and could scarcely resist it the waves struck the derrick with steadily increasing force and i watched it with all the distressing feelings that a father would evince toward a favorite child when in a situation of great danger by six o'clock the wind threw the waves obliquely against the southeast cliff and caused them to sweep along its whole length until opposed by the opposite cliff from which as each wave recalled it was met by the following one and thus accumulated they rose in one vast heap under the derrick stage beat it from under the bell and washed away the air-pump air-hoses and semaphore the stage was suspended at a height of thirty-eight feet above the surface of the sea in ordinary weather from which circumstances an idea may be formed of the furious agitation of the cove nine o'clock arrived and i had been watching for fourteen hours the constant concussions had caused the gear of the derrick to stretch every blow from the sea caused it to swing and buckle to an alarming degree nothing more could possibly be done to save it and i saw plainly that unless the gale soon ceased its destruction was inevitable therefore left an officer on watch and quitted the cliff to go to my hut and arrange my parties for the work to be put in and after the catastrophe presently he came down to meet me and reported that a stupendous roller had struck the derrick on its side and broke it off twenty feet from the hill thus than one crash was destroyed the child of my hopes and in a very short time the derrick was dashed into six pieces forming with the complicated gear one confused mass of wreckage for the storm had subsided the indefatigable seamen blacksmiths and carpenters were solving the problem afresh just as if there had not been a clean sweep of their weary months of effort this time it was a new scheme for a suspension cable that had incurred to captain dickinson while this work was in progress he made another diving bell from a water tank and succeeded in finding his air pump at the bottom of the cove two men were drowned in the surf at this stage of operations the only fatality suffered by the Royal company the diving bell was successfully slung from the suspended cable after a vast deal of ingenious during engineering and by means of it much treasure was recovered although the contrivance yawed fearfully under water and more than once capsized and spilled its crew who fought their gasping way to the surface after fourteen months of incessant toil the men and officers worn to the bone and ravaged by fever and dysentery they had found almost six hundred thousand dollars in bullion and specie or three-fourths of the total amount lost in the Thetis. it had been magnificently successful salvage achieved in the face of odds that would have disheartened a less resourceful and courageous commander than captain thomas dickinson he appears to have been the man in a thousand for the undertaking then occurred an inexplicable sort of a disappointment an act of such gross injustice to him that can be explained only on the theory of favoritism at naval headquarters captain dickinson had a grievance and he describes the beginning of his troubles in this fashion on the seventh and eighth of march some more treasure was found in a part from which we have removed several guns and here i had determined to have a thorough examination by digging feeling assured that here would be found all the remaining treasure that could be obtained our labours were drawing to a close but while i was enjoying the pleasing anticipation of a speedy and successful termination of the enterprise on the sixth i was surprised by the arrival of his Majesty's sloop algerine with orders from the commander-in-chief to me to resign the charge to commander the honourable j f f de roos of that sloop it appears that the admiralty had been led to think that no more property could be rescued and therefore ordered my removal i could not but feel this a most mortifying circumstance i had been the only person who had come forward to attempt the recovery of the large property which was considered to be irretrievably lost i had devised the whole of the methods by which a very large portion of it was recovered i had endured peril sickness toil and privation during more than a year and the work was now reduced to a mere plaything compared with what it had been and yet i was not allowed to put the finishing hand to it notwithstanding this the deep interest i felt in the undertaking remained unabated and i was determined that nothing should be wanting on my part to ensure a successful termination of it quite courteously captain dickinson explained in detail to commander the hon j f f de roos the plan and the operations and even left for him to fish up a large quantity of treasure already located and which could be scooped up from the diving-bell without difficulty with a feeling which i thought would be appreciated by a brother officer i did not attempt to bring up this treasure but left it for the benefit of our successors observing at the time that the world should not say that i had left them nothing to do but the labor of removing rocks and rubbish the amount subsequently recovered by the algerine was a hundred sixty one thousand five hundred dollars so that by captain dickinson's efforts and the use of his plans and equipment all but one sixteenth of the lost treasure was restored to its owners and of this he himself had raised by far the greater part. When he returned to England and learned that the salvage was to be awarded to the officers and men who had been engaged in the work, he naturally regarded himself as the principal salver. The Admiralty, in its inscrutable wisdom, chose to think otherwise, and the underwriters of Lloyd's, taking their cue from this exalted quarter, regarded poor Captain Dickinson with the cold and fishy eye of disfavor. The case was argued in the court of Admiralty, and the agents of Admiral Baker, he who had been in command of the squadron at rio set up the claim that he was the principal salver although the fact was plain that he had nothing whatever to do with recovering the treasure from the thetis and not even visited cape frio during the year of active operations the judge could not stomach such a high-handed claim as this and his decision set aside the admiral in favor of captain dickinson and the crew of the lightning the salvage award however amounting to seventeen thousand pounds was decreed as due also to the company of the algerine numbering almost four hundred men which left small pickings for captain dickinson and his heroes this was so obviously unfair that he appealed to the judicial committee of the privy council which increased the award by the sum of twelve thousand pounds in which commander the honourable j f f de roos and his belated treasure-seekers were not entitled to share the influential committee of lloyd's thought that captain dickinson should not have been so bumptious in defending his rights and because he disagreed with their opinions they ignored him in a set of resolutions which speak for
1: themselves first a vote of thanks to admiral sir thomas baker for his zeal and exertions second same to captain de roos of the algerine and a grant of two thousand pounds to himself as officers and crew being the amount they would have received had they been parties to the appeal third to mark the sense of the meaning of captain de Rousse's conduct they further voted to this officer a piece of plate to the value of one hundred guineas
0: in other words an unimportant naval captain deserved this censure because he had not been content to take what was graciously flung at him by lloyds and the admiralty but had stood for his rights as long as he had a shot in the locker there is something almost comic in the figure cut by commander the hon j f f de Rousse, who reaped the reward of another man's labours and received the formal thanks of lloyd's as the chief treasure-finder of the thetis frigate captain thomas dickinson was a dogged and aggressive sort of person not in the least afraid of giving offence in high places and had he not been of this stamp of man he would never have fought that winning fight against obstacles amid the hostile cliffs and waters of desolate cape frio he shows his mettle in a fine outburst of protest the provocation for which was a sentence in a letter published in a london newspaper while his case was under discussion had captain dickinson relied on the liberality of lloyd's coffee-house he would not have been a poorer man this was like a spark in a magazine and the captain of the lightning flings back in retort here then we arrive at the development of the real feelings of the underwriters here is exposed the head in front of my offending rely on the liberality of Lloyd's Coffee House so that because I would not abandon my duty to my officers and crew or separate my interests from theirs and place myself and them at the mercy of the underwriters therefore the enterprise and the services of fourteen months besides the rescue of nearly six hundred thousand dollars are to be considered as utterly unworthy of mention can it be necessary in order to entitle a british officer to honorable mention in Lloyd's Coffee House that he should abandon a right and succumbing to the feet of its mighty committee accepted donation doled out with all the ostentation of a gratuitous liberality in place of that reward which legally took precedence even of the ownership of the property rescued chapter twelve